This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Diana Adhill, the renowned British editor, once wrote, everything that makes life worth living is the result of humankind's impulse to fight the darkness in itself. And attempting to understand evil is part of that fight. The evil that was the Holocaust has been written about in many forms. That makes sense. There are as many stories as there are people who survived, escaped, or were killed. They each educate us or inspire us or guard us against dangers that can coalesce into nightmares of unimaginable proportions. As the child of Holocaust survivors, I naturally have read dozens and dozens of books about that time. Each time I am stunned by the barbarity, the evil and the scale of the murders. But I am also mesmerized by the kindnesses, the bravery, the resistance, and even the love stories that imbued these stories. So today we're gonna do something different uh, in this episode. I don't think I've ever done this in 400 uh, episodes that I've done. I've invited today Rebecca Frankel, who's the author of Into the Forest, and Julie Oringer, the author of, among other books, Invisible Bridge. And just as a side note, Invisible Bridge is one of my top 25 novels that must be read. So just make a note, because I said must be read, not just I'm, I'm encouraging you to read it. Julie wrote the New York Times uh, review of the other book that we're going to be discussing, Mala's Cat by Mala Katzenberg. Mala was a Holocaust survivor, as were uh, the Rabinowitzes in Rebecca's superb new book. And there's an interesting intersection among the three of us here today. Julie's novel, Invisible Bridge, is loosely based on her grandfather's life during the Holocaust, which has many common elements to my father's time uh, during the Holocaust, and particularly in the Munkashlager, the Hungarian uh, labor camps. And Rebecca is a close friend of one of my nieces and uh, actually spent some time with my parents, who, as I mentioned, my father was a Holocaust survivor, but so was uh, my mother. The other common element besides the fact that um, Julie and Rebecca and I have a connection is both books uh, reveal the undertold story of those who survived uh, or resisted in the forests. Uh, you know, we hear about the resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, there was the most well-known um, incident in the forest that was uh, depicted in a film a couple of years ago. But a lot of these small um, instances of surviving in the forest are pretty undertold. As I mentioned, uh, Julie wrote the review of Mala's Cat for the New York Times, and she was kind enough uh, to join us since Mala's Cat was posthumously published. 
And I want to share that Rebecca is a Polk Award recipient, former executive editor of Foreign Policy's print magazine. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, and you know, bunches of other highly acclaimed publications. Her latest book, the one we'll be talking about, Into the Forest, has been named one of the 10 best history books of 2021 by the Smithsonian and was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. And with that sort of long introduction, uh, warmest welcome to you, Julie and Rebecca, for joining me on Just the Right Book. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so both books uh, begin in small Polish villages. Um, Poland became a football between Germany and Russia beginning in 1939 when they signed a non-aggression agreement. And just like that, they just divided Poland with the East going to Russia and the West uh, going to uh, Germany. And then in 1941, Germany disregarded the agreement uh, and invaded and then occupied Poland. But I'd like to begin the conversation by having each of you briefly talk about what Jewish life was like in these villages before 1939. So Rebecca, why don't, let's start with you talking about Zettel. Sure. Um, so the Rabinowitz family that's, that I'm writing the story about in this book, um, they're from the town of Zettel, which is unique in many ways, but also unique because the population there was predominantly Jewish. Was something like 80 plus percent of the town uh, was Jewish people and they had really good relations with the non-Jewish community. Um, and so I think when we talk about, you know, the, the Nazi invasion in particular that you just mentioned, um, you know, it, it was like a stunning change to life. The Soviets who had been there, um, of course, interrupted life in many different ways. Um, but the way that Jettel was unique and the way that life existed there before was very rich Jewish life. The Rabinowitz family uh, did very well for themselves. Uh, Morris Rabinowitz was a lumber dealer and, uh, you know, Miriam Rabinowitz owned her own shop. Um, they had lots of family, lots of relatives there. It was a very happy place. Uh, there were other testimonies I was able to mind as part of my research from other survivors from the same town. And they said things like, uh, Jettel was a safe haven, it was sort of an insulated, happy community. And that one other woman who survived said, you know, it was a good place, it was a happy place, the people there were good to each other. Um, so I think the shock of what happened when the war started, and especially when the Nazis finally made it there in, in the summer of 1941 was, especially devastating to this community that hadn't really had the same uh, sort of rampant anti-Semitism that was, you know, plaguing Poland from the early 1930s. And Rebecca, in their town, as you said, about 80% of the population was Jewish. And there was a fairly, which was not true in all Polish villages, but there was a fairly um, easy relationship between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. There was, and it's not to say there wasn't anti-Semitism or that, you know, these communities didn't have conflict, but, you know, Morris and Miriam, for example, had lots of friends who were non-Jewish, uh, as did many others, the Polish uh, priests in the village. Uh, there were more synagogues than there were uh, 
churches there, but um, was very warm to the Jewish community, which, you know, at the time was sort of unusual, uh, given how much we could say, I don't know, mixed messages probably puts it a little bit too delicately, but how the leaders of this Catholic community in Poland was sort of, you know, as Hitler was coming to power, Many of them were, you know, in extremely enthusiastic fans of what he was doing and sort of his attitude toward yeah. the Jewish population of the country. Uh, and so they did. And, you know, when the Soviets came, the Rabinowitzes lost their house, for example. You know, they were seen as, you know, proprietors and very wealthy. And that wasn't sort of in line with, with communism. So they moved uh, in with a family who owned a farm, they were Christian, you know, they basically took care of the Rabinowitzes, they welcomed them into their home, Mrs. Belsky, you know, taught her how to milk a cow so she could have milk for her two young daughters, Rachel and Tanya. Um, you know, I, I came across a lot of other depictions of town, uh, towns that were nearby them even, and, and didn't find as much predominantly positive yeah, uh, things that people were saying about the towns that they'd grown up in are these villages with Jewish communities. And Julie, the town that Mala comes from, I don't know that I'll pronounce it right, Tarnagrad? Yes, that sounds right. Oh, we'll go with it. <laughs> sounds right to me. Describe what, uh, so Mala is the um, author, and so this is really Mala's memoir um, uh, that she wrote, just, Describe for us what her village was like. Yes, well, uh, I my sense is that there were a lot of similarities to the village that mm-hmm. Rebecca described. Um, Mala's family, the Zorers, they, um, her father had fruit orchards, and that was how he supported the family. Um, and she describes uh, how comfortable their family was, despite the fact that they didn't have a lot of money. So they had enough money that they could build their own house and they had the luxury of a working outhouse, um, which um, not very many families had. And they also had a well. um, So they had the luxury of water for their, um, yeah, for their cleaning, although they used, um, they used water from a different source for their drinking and cooking. But, you know, all of these details, the details of what it was like to be out in the fruit orchards in the summertime where they stayed in the little hut in the middle of the orchards to prevent theft. And the hours that she spent lying, you know, in a grassy bank with her brother and sister, just looking up at the sky and enjoying the colors of the leaves of the trees and of the blue of the sky. And especially the way she describes her studies. Um, she, her parents couldn't afford to send her to a private school, so they sent her to the, um, the local public school Um, But there were quite a few other Jewish children there, um, and she felt totally at ease there. In fact, she talks about teaching uh, the non-Jewish girls at the school to say a blessing before they eat. Um, And so um, there was a sense of total peace that she experienced, and not just peace, but joy in her life and in her family and in their living circumstances. They also had a lot of other family members close by, her family house was built just next to her maternal grandfather's house. And so there was this constant interchange of meals and love and support between these families. Um, But I think one of the things that was most important as we get a sense for what Mala's life before the war was like, um, was that she just, she really valued the opportunity to study 
and she used that opportunity to its fullest. She writes about how surprised she was to find that some of her friends didn't want to go back to school after the summer holidays, um, and that being in school was this luxury that would never be repeated once they graduated. Um, and you get a sense for her burning intellect. And that is really what ends up driving the book. But you, you feel her town as a kind of powerful support for mm -hmm. her intellectual curiosity, not only in the school itself, but also in the way she interacted with the really beautiful physical environment. And, and you know, what was common to both books and it, to reinforce what you both said is there was a real sense of home at to both these villages. You know, when I remember talking to my dad um, who lived in Hungary, he lived uh, in a tiny little village called Turing Semikloš. Actually, Tishkapishkape was the tiny little village. It was not that kind of idyllic life. There was tension in Hungary in some of these particularly larger communities already. I mean, I found my father having very little attachment or sympathy for the town that he came from, because in the 30s, there were already um, issues. Right. And you didn't get that feeling. So 1942, uh, the final solution becomes the official Nazi policy. And the Nazis had a very, very they had a roadmap for how they were dealing with these small towns and the sequence of events. So, uh, Rebecca, let's let's start with you for what that that systemic, systematic way that they started terrorizing uh, the Jews in these villages. Right. Well, a lot of the interesting. Uh, sort of lead up to the Nazis actually getting into Jadal was that the Wehrmacht soldiers came through first before the Einsatzgruppen, so the, the killing squads were coming in the SS officers. And some of these soldiers actually warned, there was one uh, young man who describes it, uh, his name is Arl Laro, and I, I watched his testimony. And he talks about interacting with the soldiers and some of them gave out candy to the Jewish children. And uh, you know he gets to talking to one and he says, you know, things are going to get really bad for you. You know, this is what's coming is going to be worse. And, uh, and of course, it, it was true. And so the first thing that would happen is they would uh, have, have a list of intellectuals or very influential people around town, um, probably gathered from other uh, non-Jewish uh, citizens in the town, would call everybody in. They would usually, I, from what it, what I read, it was like about 300 people. And in the case of Jadal, it was all prominent men and only one woman who was a very beloved nurse in town. And they said to everybody, we're taking them away for a work detail. Don't worry, they'll come back, we'll bring them back. And of course, those people were never heard from again. And so I think the beginning stage was to take the uh, infrastructure of trust and, and you know leadership in the town and, and remove it. Um, they would, you know, the Nazi officers would uh, take gifts and clothes and things and promise they would bring it, you know, however far away uh, their family members were supposed to be in this lie that they told people. Um, and then 
became all the sort of the loss of your basic human rights. You know, the Jews in, in town weren't allowed to walk on the sidewalks. They had to walk in the streets and the yellow star came and so on and so forth. They couldn't, you know, go into certain shops and, and uh, the local farmers were no longer allowed to sell their goods to their Jewish friends. I think in the case of Jettel, there was some smuggling and some private arrangements that were made. Um, and of course, then came the ghetto, which is sort of this real institutional change uh, meant to just strip everybody of their, not only their last belongings, their homes, um, but their sense of security and uh, their right to do anything. And, and in Jettel, it was it was like an internment camp. So people were you know, allowed to leave to go work, but then they had to come, come back in. So in in the case of Mala, mm -hmm. I mean, right? I, I'm not giving anything away because it's clear um, when you read the book, but both the Rabinowitzes and Mala survive uh, the war. Mala was orphaned at 12 and operated alone. I mean, operated right. alone during the entire war with like, you know, the most extraordinary chutzpah, intuition, quick wittedness, and really unimaginable resilience. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the cat um, in a minute. And the Rabinowitzes survived as a family, uh, remarkably um, as, as a family. But Julie, one of the things I'd like to hear your thoughts on is I almost couldn't believe that Mala's story was true. I mean, it, 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 and I kept going back and forth between um, marveling at it because the amount of detail she had and the stories Certainly, I've read other stories like it. But one thing that really made me think, okay, maybe this is all quite accurate, is describe for us, even before the ghetto was liberated, Mala was the one taking off the yellow star and going out there and getting food for her family. Des describe for us, like, literally, what was she doing? Well... So the, the sort of preface to her taking on this role was that, um, that sometime after the occupation, after there were quite a number of, of unprompted killings of the Jewish population, both in larger groups and smaller ones, Mala was out with her brother um, and they were trying to get some food for the family. And they had actually been given some bread and some milk that they were going to take back to their family. Um, and um, they were stopped by some officers who then end up, ended up just opening fire um, on them and killing her brother. And she fell down in the cornfield that they ran into, and they thought they had killed her as well. And so once they had left, she got up in what must have been a state of horrific shock and 
brought the food and milk home to her family and had to deliver the news to her parents of her brother's death. Now what they also realized was that, um, that she was considered to have been killed as well because as far as she knew, um, these SS officers saw her go down in the cornfield. And so, um, so from the moment that happened, um, she realized that the only way to continue to save her own life was essentially to cease to exist. So she had to kind of go underground from that moment so that she wouldn't be informed um, upon, that her you know, family wouldn't be informed upon um, and that nobody would know that they were actually harboring a child who was thought to have already been murdered. Um, and so, so she essentially had a completely undercover existence um, and since she ostensibly didn't exist, um, she, w she moved through the village and the surrounding rural areas as a kind of ghost, um, sometimes by daylight and sometimes at night. Um, and she, you know, as soon as she would leave the ghetto, her family's home became part of the area of town that became the ghetto. As soon as she left the ghetto, she would take the yellow star off her jacket um, and she would move through um, the surrounding area looking for food for her family, um, pretending to be a Christian Polish girl who was simply in impoverished circumstances and hungry. So oftentimes um, it was through her, um, yeah, just through her cunning, through her willingness to take on um, the guise of somebody who she was not. Um, that she was able to support her family during that time. Sometimes she was the only person who was bringing any kind of sustenance back to her family. Um, and she, in fact, kept them alive for far longer than they would have um, been able to survive otherwise. She essentially kept them from starving. Um, but that was just the beginning of a number of years of, of a disguised life um, that she lived that allowed her to survive in the most remarkable um, and, um, and intelligent and, um, and constantly changing fashion. Um, she could never kind of be the same person for very long, at least at the outset, um, because she was afraid of being discovered. So she but, was but, but even, Julie, there's a couple of instances where she's defiant like with a Gestapo officer, with uh, a girl that was uh, going to... Um, her. Yeah. It, it, exactly. And she managed in almost every instance, rather than trying to retreat or um, deflect, she actually took the offensive. Were you shocked by that? Well, you know, by the time she began to do that, she had already lost her family. She had yeah. lost her older brother. She knew her parents had been killed. She knew that her grandparents hadn't survived. And so in this very real sense, emotionally speaking, she had nothing to lose. Yeah. So she didn't want to go down without a fight. And so when she found herself in circumstances that seemed hopeless, instead of um, allowing herself just to be crushed, she talked back. Um, and I, I, as I read those sections, I felt like I understood yeah. 
I felt like I understood why she would have made that choice. But you're right, it was astonishing that she knew well enough how to read those circumstances, how to read those situations, um, that it, it ended up turning out that, um, that she wasn't killed outright on the spot, that she wasn't, you know, shot for her defiance. Um, sometimes she actually um, impressed her oppressors. Um, and sometimes they ended up sending her off with, with gifts of food and clothing instead of taking her life, which really was I mean, was it was, it, it, uh, it, it, and did you feel, Julie, that it defied belief at times? You know, that's so interesting that you asked that question because I guess I come, as you do, out of this tradition of survival stories. Mm. And every single survival story, because survival was so unlikely under the circumstances that, uh, that the victims of the Holocaust faced, um, every single one of those survival stories seems incredible. Every single one breaks a rule in some way, or yeah. relies on coincidence, or, or simply defies logic in some sense. And I think really what those stories point to is that rules were not governing the circumstances. It was actually human beings who were governing the circumstances. And the, the way that Mala Katzenberg writes about it at times in the book is that um, some of the soldiers she encounters were poor students of Nazism um, and did not ascribe to all of the um, the beliefs that they were meant to uphold. Um, mm. But then in other circumstances, she appealed to people's humanity. Um, there was one moment where her father, having been discovered by um, some Nazi officers in a barn where he had fled, um, she actually he was about to be killed and she defied a soldier in that moment yeah. yeah saying you know when you yeah just saying like i i'm putting myself in front of my father here um imagine that at some point your daughter may have to plead for your life because circumstances are going to be reversed and this person just seemed to have a moment of horror and then just departed um, but her speculation in the book, she too was shocked. I mean, I think she shares, I, part of the reason I think we believe in the circumstances that she describes is because she seems to share our incredulity at those moments. Yeah. Yeah. Which writes then is, you know, he must have actually had a young daughter who he was thinking of at that moment. And the thought of that, of the circumstances being reversed must have sort of appealed to, um, to, you know, his sense of compassion or humanity. Um, she really never lost the sense that she was dealing with other human beings. And that includes her desire for revenge on those human beings. Mm -hmm. and, and Rebecca, it, to go to um, Into the Forest, Morris Rabinowitz was outside the ghetto. He was somewhere in the forest Miriam gets word uh, that the ghetto is going to be imminently liquidated. So, you know, as we talk about what they did in the ghetto, it was progressive until a ghetto was ultimately liquidated, either by killing everybody in the market square or in a forest or deporting them. But I was fascinated by Miriam making the decision 
to leave with Rachel and Tanya and go into the forest. And she wasn't even sure where Morris was. That's Describe true. that for us. So, so actually at that point, unbeknownst to Miriam, so, so Morris and Miriam had this incredibly strong marriage. They were very in love. They were wonderful parents. They were very devoted to each other. And they made this decision that if they were to be separated, that there was a forester, a friend of Morris's, a Christian uh, friend, who he would know where, where one of them was. So the idea was they would meet at this house or they would go to the house and give the information of where they were. So unbeknownst to Miriam, as the liquidation started in August of 1942, Morris was still in the ghetto. He was hiding. Oh, that's right. He was hiding in the movie theater in this room above. He had he had gone when they they called everyone together again. They were they were pushing everyone out of the ghetto houses, and they knew from last time the first selection in April of 1942 what had happened. That the other so many 1,200 Jews from their town and from other places who were in that ghetto were killed. They were never going to answer the call again. So they had built this bunker in the house that they were staying in in the ghetto. But Morris's sister and mother and nephew were still alive and he had a work certificate. And so they were still sort of holding on to the hope that if he would just go with the work certificate, pretend to be, you know, his sister's husband or something that they could he could save the rest of his family. So Miriam didn't know that where Morris was, if he had survived or not. And so that sort of makes her decision to sort of, you know, take her family uh, and escape the ghetto in the middle of the night after they, sub, you know, were submerged and hiding for three full days, uh, even more brave and courageous. Um, and she was with her sister, Luba. And there were a lot of people in that bunker with them. And, you know, the time came, they, they had heard um, local Polish villagers who came and they were walking over the bunker and they were saying, you know, rich Jews lived in this house and they made these plans to loot it. So they knew that their window to escape was going to be really short. And they just seized the moment. And Luba was the only one willing to go up and, and see if the coast was clear. So it was really these two sisters, these two women leading not only the two girls, Rachel and Tanya, but this whole other group of people who sort of uh, connived their way to, to go with them. Um, and yes, she didn't really know. And the remarkable thing about that night is they managed to get outside of the ghetto and to escape really without uh, running into anybody or being caught is that they ended up going around in circles. And so they didn't end up getting very far at all after walking the whole night. And so just as they're sort of you know, the girls are exhausted, they're tired, they haven't had anything to eat. They went to this house where uh, this very older, this elderly couple lived. And um, they were fearful to be helping Jews, but they gave them some, I think it was some pickle juice and a little bit of bread. And they pushed over to the side of the road because they knew they'd have to hide as soon as the sun came up. And all of a sudden, Miriam tells everyone to be quiet. And she says, I hear Meshka, which is what she called Morris and her sister is like, no, 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 this is nuts. And she starts shouting his name, you know, Meshka, Meshka. And everyone's putting their hands over her mouth and they're saying she's gone mad. She's crazy. And she actually did hear them. And so that's how they made yet one of these other sort of miraculous and, and hard to believe um, reconnections. And from there, they went into the woods really together. And, and uh, this is really a question uh, for both of you, Rebecca, based on your knowing the Rabinowitz, Rabinowitzes, and then we'll talk about the Lazowskis in a minute, and Julie, uh, because of 
your family. You can't help but hear these stories or read books uh, like Mala's Cat or Invisible Bridge or Into the Forest without speculating how you might manage. Like, would you ever have the bravery? I mean, Rebecca, you know my mother. My mother didn't seem like the kind of woman that would survive Auschwitz. And I mean, she seemed like this, you know, sweet, cute She was a wonderful bubby, right? By the time I met her, she was, Shoshana's, you know, the great, she was the grandmother and she was so loving and wonderful. But Shoshana did tell me that story of what your, your mother did. Uh, And maybe I don't want to, you know, botch the story, but it was really a very inspiring thing about how, I don't know where they lined up and there was the expectation they were going to be shot. And then I, would you tell it actually, if you don't Yeah. So it was, it, it was actually, they needed 50 workers and they had, she was in Auschwitz and they had them line up, you know, and when they did that, they generally were going to kill you. And what they did is they asked the women to hold out their hands and what they wanted were workers. So they didn't want women that were so weak that their hands would shake because they were going to go, they were going to get transferred to the Gross Rosen camps in Reichenbach and work on transistor radios. So they needed hands. Mm. So instead of um, them shooting them, you had to put your hand out. And then they, I don't know if it was that story because there are so many stories, but she ended up being um, moved from, uh, Birkenau, Auschwitz to the Gross Rosen camps because of that. But there was also a time where she considered killing herself. There was also a time that somebody saved her life. She saved somebody else's life. But for, for either one of you, when you read these, you, what do you think it is that become the contributing factors to those people that manage to be, you know, extraordinary like Mala or brave and sturdy like Miriam or even the girls, right? I mean, there were some people who killed babies because their crying would put 25 people at risk. So people made bad ugly decisions and people made kind decisions, but what are your observations about, I mean, we're talking about survivors here. Yes. Um, I constantly asked that question as I was reading the book. Um, The thing I was so struck by as I came to understand who Mala Soror was, um, was this sense that she was really angry she was not acquiescent to what happened, uh, nor did she feel um, that this was her fate and that she had to um, kind of succumb to it. It wasn't sadness that overpowered her. It was it was rage. Um, and, I, you know, it was the thing that kind of set her story apart in a way. Um, I don't feel like I've read that many stories of no. female survivors of the Holocaust who were driven by rage and who were driven by a sense of vindictiveness. She wanted to 
tell the world the story of what had happened to her family and to her people. She came from a family that valued her intelligence and from a tradition that valued storytelling. And so what kept her alive was the knowledge that if she could persist, this story would be told. And I kept feeling as I was holding this story in my hands, oh my God, she did it. She kept doing it. But numerous times over the course of the narrative, she returns to that desire to tell the story. And so in a sense, storytelling saved this person's life. And, and you know, Julie, to that point, I listened to an interview uh, that her daughter did in um, England for the American uh, refuge, Jewish refugee uh, organization. And her daughter said just that, that she felt it was critical that that story be told, that people needed to know that this is what happened. This is what people did. And it, she did, according to her daughter, to exactly your point, consider it her form of revenge, that she was going to reveal the details. Rebecca, what's Miriam? Did you know Morris also? I didn't meet them ever. They uh, both passed away in the early 1980s. So, you know, for me, I feel as though I know them now, but um, I didn't. Well, you know both their daughters. Yes. So Rachel and Tanya, who are now Ruth and Toby, um, they're both still with us. And they were sort of my my main well source of, of information and telling the story. Of How would they describe their, their parents? <sighs> um, with a lot of love. Um, and, you know, their family stands out to me in, in a lot of ways. Um, so many of the families that came into the forest who managed to escape their ghettos, they did not, as you mentioned, come together. They did not come intact as a family unit. There were a lot of, you know, women with young children or men without their families and kids who were, went in as orphans. Um, and so Rachel and Tanya, Ruth and Toby, managed to, to maintain their childhood in a way that like they did it's not crazy. have to do it. And so when they talk about their experience in the woods, there are horrific things, of course, that they remember and being hungry all of the time and seeing dead bodies in the morning during the winter, people who had, you know, succumbed to hypothermia, but they also have happy memories. And it's not wrong to call them that because they were with family. They were with their aunt. They had a cousin who unfortunately didn't survive his time in the woods. Um, he was a partisan fighter. And I think that also it's remarkable that Miriam and Morris's marriage held together the way that it did. There were other families that I, I read about and, and testimonies where the men separated. They were conscripted by the Soviets to be in the partisans or they chose to willingly. They wanted to go fight. Um, and Morris's primary objective through the whole thing. And of course he became sort of, you know, what we'll call a reluctant leader in the woods that people literally would not leave him even as, you know, other people who weren't related to them and, and were just neighbors or just who came upon them because he had this knowledge of the forest having been in the lumber business. And he had these Christian families that were helping them out and, and coming to them and saying, you know, the, the Nazis are coming or, you know, they've moved into this town, which is close to whatever camp they were living in at the time. And, you know, he did say, um, I think multiple times later in life, that if he had known what the experience was going to be, he would never have gone into the woods. Mm. But it was not 
you know, for choosing. And it, it was not a hospitable hiding place. It was the only hiding place really for most people. Um, but it was, you know, a, a really brutal, the forest itself was a sort of violent uh, sanctuary. Subculture. It was its own yes. ecosystem. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there, there's um, two things, or one thing I want to get to before I um, finish the conversation uh, with, with really love stories. But Julie, one of the, one of the sets of experiences of Mala's that reinforces and sort of coalesce for me now that I hear you say it, her need for being independent and self-reliant was she, she ended up you know, uh, in disguise as a Polish girl working for what was considered Polish slave labor, worked in a hotel restaurant, ended up uh, going to London where they took uh, some of the refugees. She had two opportunities to be adopted. Right. And she turned them both down. Did, were you surprised by her doing that? Well, it was, it was a really interesting choice that she made in both of those instances. Um, I felt like by that point in the memoir, she had established her own independence so strongly um, that that felt like one reason that she wanted to continue to be alone. She almost felt, and sometimes it was kind of defensive. Sometimes she felt like she had to be alone in order to continue to survive. And so when she was appealed to by these families who wanted to adopt her, her survival is no longer an issue in the same way. Um, and so there wasn't the same kind of impetus for her continued independence. But I think that what was driving her refusal to join another family was her sense of loyalty to her parents and to her siblings. She didn't feel like she could become in any, in a legal sense or in an emotional sense, the child of anyone but her parents. Um, she had this incredible fidelity to her family. And at first, I think it was, it was a kind of um, acknowledged fantasy. She knew that she was almost teasing herself with this idea that maybe somehow her parents had survived. And when she had kind of really given up on that idea and had a, a kind of more mature and realistic knowledge of the horrific thing that had happened, um, what persisted for her was a sense of being her parents' child ad infinitum um, and never wanting to mm -hmm. break that. Rebecca, you opened the book with, I don't even know where, I, remarkable is not even a good enough word for the coincidence of how you opened the book and the ramifications uh, of that, that I got chills when I read it. 
I get chills the 47,000 times I've repeated that story. <laughs> if my husband hears that story one more time, our 52-year marriage might just end. <laughs> so, Rebecca, share with us the way, the story that you opened the book with, because I, I just love it. Mm -hmm. So the book opens, um, you know, with this wedding of people whose names we don't even know anymore. It's they're they're sort of incidental, but they provide this venue and the opportunity for the thing that you're referring to to happen. And, you know, at this wedding is this young man. His name is Philip Lazowski. He's a student living in New York City. Um, you know, he's an immigrant. He was also from a small town in Poland. He has survived the Holocaust and he's now living in the United States. And he goes to this wedding uh, very reluctantly. He has to borrow a suit. He has to borrow shoes. He's, you know, wary of his accent, but he goes. And because he's not comfortable dancing, when the, you know, the wedding guests get up and the music starts playing, he stays seated at the table and also does uh, also stay. Another person stays seated at the table as well, and it's a young woman. And they start talking and they find out they have all these things in common. They are both taking night courses at Brooklyn College, and they are both originally from small towns in Poland. And he tells her that he's from the town of Belitsa, and she gets very excited. And she says, I know this woman who saved a boy from Belitsa. And he says, well, you know, what's the story? What happened? And she starts telling this story of how this woman intervened on behalf of this young boy who she didn't know um, while she was, you know, in the selection in Jettel, Um, and she had her two young daughters with her. And as he's listening to her recount the details of the story, he says, that was me. I'm that boy. And so he, you know, runs to the nearest payphone, he dials the operator and he says, you know, please get me Rabinowitz in Hartford, Connecticut. And the operator says, well, there are a lot of Rabinowitz families in Hartford, Connecticut, you know, which one do you want? And he didn't know. And he said, you know, he, he looks around in his pocket and he doesn't have enough change to make another phone call. And he says, well, dial the first one and the line rings. And at the other end of the line is Miriam Rabinowitz, who was, in fact, the woman who saved him in Jettel, you know, so many years ago. Um, and he sits down that night. He writes her a letter that Miriam Rabinowitz would keep for all the years of her life. And she writes back and they arrange a meeting in Hartford. So he drives up with a cousin. He visits her and, you know, he sees her again uh, for the first time in a long time and sort of meets for the first time her two daughters, uh, Rachel and Tanya, who are now Ruth and Toby. They're grown up there in their late teens. And he decides that he likes the look of the older daughter, Ruth. And so they start this very, <laughs> it's a very long simmering courtship and they exchange letters and they visit each other at college. And eventually, um, you know, two years later, they get engaged and they get married. So this, you know, Miriam Rabinowitz, who did save the life of Philip Lazowski, she didn't know him at all and um, kept him from being killed uh, when he found himself alone at the first ghetto selection in April of 1942 in Jeddah, um, you know, saved the boy who would end up bringing her her first grandchildren later in life. Mm. And so Philip Lazowski- Can you believe that, Julie? <laughs> you know, the, the thing that really- blew me away about this story was the fact that 
um, that she didn't know that he had survived. You know, yeah. so he, by calling her that day, was bringing that news to her. He um, was. And, you know, it's interesting because the Rabinowitzes were also unique in the fact that after the war and after they settled in the United States, they talked about the woods a lot. It was not a taboo subject in their home. It was not a, a dark corner that they tried to stay away from, you know, when they were talking about what they'd been through. And Miriam did wonder very often what ever happened to the boy from Belitsa. And so it was, you know, the reason why this friend of Ruth's, a young woman whose name was Gloria Kozlovsky, had heard the story because they did talk about him. And Miriam was, you know, so I don't want to say fixated, but it was something that she did think about quite a bit. And, and you know, Rebecca, I, I, talking about the Rabinowitzes, and you knew my family, I, I've often said that if I wrote a book about my family, I would call them the happiest Holocaust family ever. Because as you know, our house was a bit no secrets, it was very celebratory. It was, if we're gonna, if we survived, we're gonna live. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, everybody came out of the war uh, in a, in a obviously different way. And, you know, one of the things that we didn't get to talk about that, of course, strikes you when you read uh, Mala's Cat or Into the Forest is we are again watching barbarity. We are again watching that we're not saving children, that that there are autocrats who are getting people to do their bidding regardless of the inhumanity of it. And I, it, it, you know, I keep hoping if we read books like Mala's Cat and read books like Into the Forest, that there will be tiny, tiny incremental steps that will save anything from being as bad as we think it could be. And I, it, you know, it breaks your heart. You feel sad over again, but I do think it's important for us to Rebecca and your, you know, in both your cases to write these stories, to do the research, to tell, to tell these stories. Um, because they matter, you know, if there's five people who end up changing how they're going to operate and they happen to be in the administration uh, that can in Europe or the United States or anywhere in the world, uh, it makes a difference. So I'm sorry that we've run out of time. I want to, you know, we have barely touched the surface. Um, I, I would share two things with our listeners before I thank both of you. One is the amount of research, Rebecca, that you did and the kind of urgency and detail that you uh, brought uh, to the story of the, Rabino the Rabinowitzes made me feel like I was right there. I mean, it's uh, it, it because it, and it has so many threads uh, to the story, the love story, the kindness, the the the. Um, evilness, I was going to say badness. <laughs> the, I don't think that's a word. Uh, evilness. And, and I think in Mala's cat, in the instance of that, we didn't talk about whether we thought the cat was imaginary. We'll have to save that 
uh, conversation, you're again struck by the resilience of human beings. Right. And I always like to focus in a story like Mala's about the small kindnesses that contributed. I mean, there was obviously the bad stuff. Um, so I, I feel... I feel like we ran out of time. I'm sorry <laughs> to our listeners. You're just going to have to read the damn books. <laughs> uh, Rebecca, really thank you for um, writing this book and telling the Rabinowitz's story. I mean, you can't help but but feel charmed by it. And Julie, thank you so much for taking the time you know, little did you know that when you agreed to write the review that <laughs> you would get barraged with the request to uh, join us and talk about uh, the book. Well, I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to do so. And it's always such a pleasure to speak about any book um, with you. Um, and I love that we are, yeah, that we're having this conversation at such a, at such a vital time. Um, so it's been a total pleasure um, to speak to both of you. And Great. I hope everyone will read Rebecca's book. Yeah. Thank you. Well, read them both. Rebecca, thank you. And maybe <laughs> thank you so we'll, much. we'll all see each other in Maine. That's the plan. Okay. We'll keep talking. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Yeah. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.